Listening Dog Media. How to DJ. How to DJ. DJ. How to DJ. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins and this is How to DJ. You didn't call it DJ and you just called it playing records. If you can't enjoy the music you're playing, how the hell do you expect other people to enjoy it? How to DJ. A podcast that explores the life stories, techniques, minds and experiences of much-loved DJs where I asked them to pick five questions from a box of 45. There was a period where we used to go into Glasgow and busk, not because we wanted to be musical, but we just wanted to really kind of wind people up and cause a bit of a commotion. And this episode promises to be quite an extraordinary journey. In July 1990, the Soup Dragons had a top 10 hit with I'm Free. Later, the High Fidelity toured the world. I wrote this little two-minute song that was recorded in my bedroom. You know, and this is after somebody whose last LP was recorded at Electric Lady Studios in New York. And, you know, £300 billion was spent on making it. I was sitting there thinking, you know, this time five years ago, I was playing Madison Square Garden, supporting NXS. And now I'm sitting in a, basically a cell. But there was a big gap between then and a makeover for Sean Dixon to become Hi-Fi Sean. Sean, hello. Hello. I like, I like that bit about a makeover. It sounds like I was uh, <laughs> taken away and uh, spruced up. There you go. Well, I want to find out how that happened in a bit. But for now, Sean, you were born and raised in Glasgow. What sort of childhood would you say you had? Well, I actually come from a town which is about 12 miles outside Glasgow, what they call one of the satellite towns. It was originally a mining town, but it kind of always had people that were into music. And growing up was fun because I used to go to guitar lessons when I was young. Like, uh, I think I was about seven or eight when I started guitar lessons uh, from the guy that lived around the corner from me. And um, that's how I got to know Norman out the Teenage Fan Club who lived around the corner from me. And then eventually I got to know Douglas from the BMX Bandits and that's how the Holy Trinity of Norman, Douglas and Sean got together and created chaos for a few years in our little town of Belsill and had lots of fun doing silly things like trying to put on concerts at our school that we would get banned from, thinking up band names that would get us banned, but we never got banned and we had to play the concert in the end. So uh, I had a great childhood, actually. It was lots of uh, discovering of music and lots of discovering of uh, youth. Were the three of you at the same school then? No, we weren't actually. They, those two were at the same school and I was at the other school. You know, it was kind of Scotland, it's religious, there's Catholic schools, there's Protestant schools. At my school, we were always made to go to church or chapel, as they called it, on a Friday afternoon. And as I got a bit older, um, I kind of never used to go. Sean, um what about the music that you were into? What what were you listening to whilst you were learning guitar? Oh, God, I was about eight, maybe nine, actually. Um, and it was um, it was a course called Bert Whedon. And I think Bert Whedon was some kind of easy listening guitar player from the 70s. And you had to learn kind of how to read music and play guitar. And when I think back to it, I was just kind of horrified at the songs that I was made to learn because they were just so awful. 
I was learning songs by the shadows. I really didn't want to know how to play Apache. It just didn't really mean anything to me. And the fact it was actually learning songs that was Cliff Richard's backing band made it even worse. I mean, even at the age of 10, I was realising, like, I really don't want to be learning Cliff Richard's songs. Do you remember getting into pop music then? You know, the crazy thing about those um, lessons, it was always a Thursday between seven and half past seven, which was Top of the Pops. Top of the Pops. Yeah. So I used to have to turn up to this guy's house. He was called Sandy. I used to turn up to Sandy and he was kind of cool. He was kind of a hip guitar player, but kind of teaching you, you know, these lessons. And I used to turn up and I would always see what the first track was on Top of the Pops. And I would always see what number one was because I was leaving the house. And he always had the television on in the living room. So as I came in, I'd always be standing there waiting to go into the room with them, watching the first song on Top of the Pops. And then I used to come out and, you know, oh, that's number one. So for, for years and years and years, I never really saw Top of the Pops. That was the biggest, the biggest bummer about the whole thing. But, Sean, it, it seems like Sandy set you up for a career in music and uh, uh, I guess changed your life. Sandy gave me teenaged angst. That's what he gave me. Because I realised quite early on that I kind of like playing guitar, but I can't be bothered with all the kind of semantics that go about that you're supposed to know to be able to play guitar. So I decided I was going to learn how to play guitar my way. And I did. And uh, what about your first band? (laughs) What was my first band? Um, As I said, myself and Douglas and Norman, uh, there used to be a hotel in Bells Hill called the Hart and Rig Hotel, which is spoken about in movies now. You know, there's been that movie, Teenage Superstars, which focuses quite heavily on Bells Hill and the music scene in Glasgow and, and how all these satellite towns and the main cities kind of connect eventually. Um, but we used to put little nights on, you know, and we used to kind of create bands just so we could kind of support somebody or or play with somebody. I'm interested to understand the progression from being a young teen, putting on gigs where you could and getting through school and that turning into the Soup Dragons ultimately. Yeah, I mean, the uh, Soup Dragons thing happened... There was a period where we used to go into Glasgow and busk on a Saturday afternoon, not because we wanted to be musical, but we just wanted to really kind of wind people up and cause a bit of a commotion. So we used to do things like stand outside Marks and Spencers on a Saturday afternoon, myself and Norman and Douglas and a few other people, and we would do uh, songs like Psycho Killer and Velvet Underground songs to grannies coming out of Marks and Spencer's buying their underwear on a Saturday afternoon. So uh, (laughs) it was our way of um, kind of having some kind of laugh. And um, we'd make money and we'd go and buy records and then we'd go back home and all listen to records. But you kind of got to know people from the centre of the city and uh, I met a few people. I think that's what young people don't realise before social media, to find people that you were on the same wavelength of you had to kind of guess by the way they acted, the way they looked, the way they dressed, or you went to concerts and you met people at concerts, you know, you had to do a bit of groundwork. And we all started connecting a family tree of many 
people that make music. And the crazy thing is, everybody that's in that movie and everybody that's from that period of time, everybody's still making music to this day and everybody still puts out records to this day. So I, I think that shows you where everybody's hearts really were. Had you DJ at all at this point? Yes. This was before the Soup Dragon. I was actually start the Soup Dragons. I DJed at the first few Soup Dragons gigs. One of them was at the Hatton Rick Hotel. And one of them was in a place called Bridge. But um, you didn't call it DJing. You just called it playing records. <laughs> like, do you want to play the records? Yeah, play the records. So you would stand there playing records on your record player and sharing your record collection with your friends. That's And to be honest, that's kind of how I still feel in a way because I never set out to be a DJ. It was just lots of reasons why I've ended up in this kind of trajectory of, you know, making music, DJing and all kinds of things. Can you remember the very first song you played at one of those Sick Dragons gigs? Oh, God. Uh, so it would have been things like... Um, uh, likely the Jesus and Mary chain and uh, Stooges records, MC5, Orange Juice. But then we used to kind of, I used to always play things like um, old Motown records or T Rex. I mean, everybody knows I'm a mad T Rex fan. I'd be playing T Rex records, I'd be playing glam rock records, I would be playing James Brown 45s. I actually remember one of the first times I played. I took my little box, you know, those little seven-inch 45 record boxes mm-hmm. that uh, you used to get in Woolworth. I remember taking them, played some records before we went on stage, played, come off, and then some other bands went on. And somebody asked if they could look through my records. And I was like, yeah, sure, on you go. And um turned around and they'd stolen half my 45s. No. Yeah, I know. So I've got to think of a record I would have played. Um, without a shadow of a doubt, I bet I played Get It On by T-Rex. <laughs> it's interesting, I think, that you said the Soup Dragons thing. I would have assumed that it was a hugely significant part of your life. You made it sound quite like a phase almost. <laughs> <laughs> the Soup Dragons thing. Did I actually say that? Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> a subliminal uh, slip. You know, some people look at their musical lives as careers. I just look at it as lots of things that happened in a kind of succession of time and a timeline. And um, the Soup Dragons were a period of my life from the age of 17 to, well, what would it have been? It would have been 27, 28, you know. So uh, it was a wonderful time. It was we had some amazing times, but it was a point in your life when you realise music and industry actually are two separate words. And you have to start getting your head around a lot of um, strange situations that you're put in. Um, looking back in it now, I wished kind of around the time of 1990 onwards, I would have just accepted and had a bit more fun instead of trying to question everything, which is something that you learn. But um, I questioned everything, you know, anything. It was a question why something was successful. Why is this successful? Why is this band starting to get really sick? You know, you, you just, you're young. You question life. And uh, I seem to do that a lot less these days. 
good. I'm guessing that's better for your mental health. Yes, yeah. There's been periods where that's not been too healthy as well. But uh, that's a whole different story. Well, I guess it's something that we could end up exploring. But um, for now, I guess the high fidelity after kind of crossing over with an after the soup dragons might have been a, a more comfortable place for you. Um the high fidelity came from myself. Uh, I think when the Soup Dragon split up, I was spending a lot of time in New York and I partied to excess and, you know, lately sent myself over the edge a little bit. And then I came back home to Glasgow and um, decided to uh, lock myself away for a while and then realised that I was starting to write songs again. Uh, I wrote this little two-minute song called Addicted to a TV that was recorded in my bedroom, you know, and this is after somebody whose last LP was recorded at Electric Lady Studios in New York, and, you know, £300 billion was spent on making it. I went back to Glasgow and recorded this little two-minute song, um, played it to a, a guy who was a friend who had a record label called Vinyl Japan in Tokyo, Played it down the phone and he said he loved it. Can I put it out? And I was like, sure, why not? And made a little video. Um, the video was hilarious because uh, it was just me myself at that time. I went to a well known electrical store called Dixon's that was around in those days in the 90s. And um, <laughs> they had this uh, thing on that you could buy anything. Uh, keep it for the weekend, and if you didn't like it, you could bring it back in the Monday and get your credit card credited again. So I bought loads of video equipment. I bought a video camera, bought lights, bought everything. And we went away and we made a video all weekend and then took all the equipment back in the Monday and got all the money back. So the video <laughs> didn't cost anything. <laughs> and um, we put the record out, and NME gave it single of the week which was really a shock, you know, because there was periods of highs and lows with the music press, but Stephen Wells, bless him, he put out his single of the week. I loved it. And um, and then the crazy thing is Top of the Pops 2 in those days, you know, the BBC 2 Top of the Pops, they, uh, they showed the video. And it was kind of weird. It was going from this mass success, excess of... Uh, expensive studios and record companies and records that were successful all around the world back to just making a seven inch and a video that didn't cost anything. And by that point, I was disappearing up my backside being a perfectionist. And that gave me a really good kind of juxtapose about how to make music and how to make the stuff that goes along with the records you make. And that's what happened with the High Fidelity. The High Fidelity was much more of a DIY, punk ethic kind of um, project that for me at that time, I really needed to do to get back to some kind of reality of what was important, if that makes sense. Yeah, it absolutely does. And uh, the success of the High Fidelity saw you, you toured the world. Um, and although this might seem a bit random, sure, in terms of your journey in music, it might seem a bit random to ask, but when did you get married? Well, I, myself and my girlfriend, who had been with since the start of the Soup Dragons, even before the Soup Dragons, uh, we didn't get married until about 14 years into a relationship. And that was obviously the right thing for you at that time. Uh, yes. Um, 
who are very happy. We had a big old Victorian house in Glasgow and lots of friends hanging about it. And it was a really beautiful, wonderful time. But uh, I managed to destroy that quite quick. How? I came out as gay. Um, I didn't come out. I was thrown from a very high building out, if you want to put it that way. I went through a period where I thought I was bisexual. And around then, around 1999, whatever, I got my first computer where I could actually connect it to being online. And um, I started entering the, the CD world of chat rooms back then just to talk to people that I suppose I thought were like-minded like me. And I met a guy who was married with children and said to me, did I want to experiment? Which I did. Uh, this went on and on and on until he told me he'd fallen in love with me and he wanted me to lead my wife and start a life together, blah, blah, blah. At that point, I was, my head was all over the place and I kind of decided to do that. I told my wife I was gay, went round to the guy's house and he shut the door in my face saying, he'd what the hell did you do that for? And that's when I found out the guy was actually a gay man who gets his kicks off with married men, and I was just being used. I was just being groomed for a bit of fun. But at that point, there was no going backwards. I'd said the three words um, basically over a toaster on a Tuesday morning. I remember it like it was yesterday. And I guess you talked about your mental ill health. I'm guessing this was a point at which you spiralled? Uh, yeah. I left the family home, um, got myself this little burnt-out one-bedroom flat because uh, I had to start from scratch. I didn't have much money, so um, the landlord said that the house had been on fire. If I would do it up, I could have it quite cheap. And problem is I didn't do it up. I just moved some stuff in and just sat there staring at the walls. I uh, realizing what the hell, you know, I'd lost all my friends, I'd lost everything, I'd lost a lot of my family. Um, I was basically on my own. And that's when I took an overdose and tried to kill myself. But luckily, the person who phoned me at that time was a guy that I befriended around in, like a new friend. And he realized that I wasn't speaking fluent and I was slurring, etc. He knew I was in a bad place and he sent an ambulance round. Uh, by that point, I don't remember any of this. I just remember waking up in a hospital. And then I was put in a psychiatric unit for over a week, locked up. How do you come back from that? <laughs> it just sounds ridiculous, but... Um, I kind of have to explain that my manager was in the Soup Dragons was Jazz Summers, who was married to Yaz. And for some reason, when I'm in a psychiatric unit and they've taken your belt off you, they've taken your shoelaces off you, they've taken everything from you that where you can be a threat to yourself to remove from you. And I'm sitting and I realized that I'd reached the bottom. There isn't much lower that you can get than this. I was sitting there thinking, you know, this time five years ago, I was playing Madison Square Garden, supporting NXS, and now I'm sitting in a, basically a cell 
I can hear the Yaz thing coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, you can guess what song started to spin around in my head in a kind of uh, sarcastic, sick way. Um, so, yeah, the only way is up for you and me now. And that's what I decided. I just decided at that point, you know something? I can't go the other way. I have to work myself back up. And I did. Yeah. I convinced the doctors because at that point I was actually um, starting to DJ. The word DJ, not just playing records. Even though the party that I'd started was with my friends, we started this party at Glasgow Art School, which we called Record Players, because uh, Carol Smiley, who's like a Scottish television personality, I was DJing in a bar once, and she came into me and she went, oh, who do the record players belong to? And I thought, Nobody calls them record players anymore. <laughs> but she's like, you got two record players. Where do they come from? And I'm like, and I told my friend, and he was like, that's the name for our party, record players. So we started a party for record players. So I actually took that overdose around that time, and that was a Thursday night. And then a week later, I convinced the doctor. I said to the doctor, right, what would you say if I said right now, I can go out and DJ in a few hours' time on a Thursday night at this party that I DJ every week. Would you let me go? Because it shows you that I'm trying to move myself forward here. And he was quite a young guy, and he just looked at me and he said, I believe you, but we're going to take a chance. We'll let you go. So I left the um, psychiatric unit and got home, got my records, and went straight to the Glasgow Art School and DJed for uh, four or five hours. So is this when Hi-Fi Sean was born? Yeah, right. So the Hi-Fi Sean thing, <laughs> I'm glad you've asked that because I don't really tell this much. And, and, and it's quite a funny story as I think I'm the only person as a DJ whose name came from their email address. Because around that time, um, you know, email, and, you know, I sound like I'm really old. Yeah, I remember when email started. But I, when I was in the high fidelity, we were given email addresses, even though half of us likely never used them. We were given the Hi-Fi Sean at blah, 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 Hi-Fi Paul, Hi-Fi Ross, Hi-Fi Adrian. Um, when we started the party record players, my friend Alan was called Hush Puppy, which is kind of a cool name because he was, used to be a Northern Soul DJ. And he said to me, you should think up a, like a DJ name. And I'm like, can I not just be Sean Dixon? And he's like, why don't you use that thing you've got, that email thing? Hi-Fi Sean, that's quite cool. <laughs> and um, that's how Hi-Fi Sean started at that record players party, because of my email. Brilliant. So can you remember your first record that you played as Hi-Fi Sean? I likely do, because as Hi-Fi Sean uh, at record players, we were playing a lot of Electroclash mixed with disco. Our classic thing was at the end of a night of like, you know, really euphoric disco and high energy and electroclash and electro music. We would play Saint Plan Pour Moi, but we'd put the club in darkness and put a strobe light on, and it'd just be one and a half minutes of da 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 So um, I'm going to say Saint Plan Pour Moi because I played that record a lot. But seriously, what was the first record I played in Sci Fi Sean? It would likely have been something like a chic 12 inch or. I could be really cool and say, yeah, my first record was something by Tief Schwartz or something, but it likely wasn't. It was likely Everybody Dance by Chic, something like that. That's still pretty cool. No, it's pretty cool. Yeah, it was on vinyl. It was on the 12-inch. I had that 12-inch since I was 14, 15. So, yeah, it was great. It was, it was the, that club 
Alan is an amazing DJ and he taught me so much actually. I've, I've, I give Alan a lot of credit for learning me how to mix and I had lots of house records as well. We played house music as well. I tended to play more house music than Alan did, but um, that was my education was that club before I met my husband and moved to London. And how I met my husband is a story as well. So uh, that happened really quick as well. You know, I spent years and years of abusive relationships and thinking I wished I hadn't came out and trying to get my head around what the hell I'd done. And and then I met a wonderful man who saved my life. And um, I did something that I said I would never, ever do. Um, and all the years in the Soup Dragons, we were told to move to London because you'll be more successful if you move to London. And we were like, nah, we're staying in Glasgow. And I was always like, no, I don't want to live in London. And <laughs> then I met a man and I moved to London, basically within <laughs> three days. Um, I'd never met him before in person, but we got introduced over the phone and we spoke for three or four days over the phone nonstop and realised within the third day that we'd fallen in love with each other and said to each other, you know, I think I've fallen in love with you. And he said the same. And I said, well, I think we better actually meet before we start saying things like this. And uh, and I said, I'll get on a train tomorrow and I'll come down to London and meet you. And he went, okay, I'll meet you at the station. Um, got on the train. And then there was an almighty fire at King's Cross. So all the trains coming down from Scotland got stopped halfway down. And I was on the train and I realised, you know, Gail Porter? Yeah. She was sitting across from us and she had a child, she had a little girl and she had a dog. And she was struggling with all her stuff because we were told to get off the train. We were told about the trains, there was no trains going to London. We might have to try and find hotels. And it was in the middle of nowhere. We were somewhere in kind of northern England that we'd stopped at. And... um I said to her, listen, do you want some help? You've got lots of stuff here. I'll help you off the train. And she goes, are you going to London? And I'm like, yeah. And I told her the story. I was yeah, I'm, I'm about to meet this guy. I spoke to him on the phone a few days ago and I've fallen in love with him. And she went, I'm getting a car to pick me up from London, from the TV company. Um, get in the car with me and I'll take you down. So I'm obviously texting Mike saying, um, I've just kind of, I'm in a car with Gail Porter coming to meet you and he's just like what and I'm like yeah the trains are not coming to London so you're going to have to meet me at a tube stop and not at King's Cross anymore and he went okay so um, to cut a long story short I got off at a tube stop and um, met Mike and I've never been back to Glasgow since that day I moved in with him that day I was expecting you to mention in this conversation Norman and Douglas wasn't expecting Carol Spiney and Gail Porter. Uh, yeah, so we decided that day because we'd both never felt emotion like that before. Him as well, I and mean, you know, and he was he was a fully fledged gay man. He'd been out since he was about 16, 17. I, I was just a novice. We looked at each other and said, right, let's make a deal. If we are together this day in five years' time, we'll get married. And we did. Fantastic. Sean, uh, time for the first of your five picks from 45 in this record box. Right. All the questions are on 45 sleeves, and I'll dip into the box. You just tell me when, and I'll pick one of them out, okay? Okay. So just say when. When. Okay. 
When was your worst night at the decks and what went wrong? <laughs> oh my God, that's a good one. Um, you know, I've played some really weird ones when you're, you when you go to somewhere in Europe and play. And um, I think one of the worst ones I had was I was in France and you know, it was one of those things where the decks were just on a table in a club. And the dance floor was kind of the same level as the table. And somebody came and threw up all over me and threw up all over the decks and then collapsed on top of the decks and then the table collapsed. You can't get much worse than that one. <laughs> That's like a showstopper. <laughs> I mean, literally the music stopped so that everybody saw that it was happening as well, that I was standing there with puke on me. The person had collapsed and puked all over the decks and the decks were lying on the floor. So... That's a good one. What did you do? I just waited till somebody else helped me. I just stood there like, help. <laughs> and some kind of engineer came across and sorted it out. But, you know, let's just say the atmosphere suddenly changed. You're a modest guy. Um, I wonder when you felt confident as Hi-Fi Sean, when you were getting bookings as Hi-Fi Sean, that you felt like... That, that was your world now. Oh, my God. Um, I still get a thrill out of um, being booked as Hi-Fi Sean and thinking, oh, great, I get to go to, to Milan tomorrow and play my favourite records loud, and somebody's actually letting me do this. <laughs> I love it. It's great. You know, it's, uh, I still get a complete thrill out of it. But uh, the first time, I think Ibiza was the one, you know, because I suppose in the DJ world, that name, that island is mentioned so much. And I'd never played Ibiza before. I'd never even been to Ibiza. And then I get booked to play Ibiza. It was around the time of Testify. And Crystal Waters came with me. And it was one of those moments where I was standing and I was playing to a good few thousand people. And Crystal Waters was doing a PA of uh, Testify, but also doing Gypsy Woman and things. And I was just like standing there thinking... This is about the closest I've ever experienced as a DJ has been back in the band, being the lead singer. One of the most amazing experiences I've had regarding Testifying Crystal was Ministry of Sound. And the crowd there sang the chorus at the top of their voices. It was insane. It was a... Uh, it was one of those real moments because, all, you know, all my life I've made these records and you just move on to the next one, make another record. You know, right now, you know, I've just finished making this wonderful album with David McCallum. I'm already thinking about making the next one. I just move forward. But every now and then you release a record and, it, you know, it really connects with people and it becomes kind of like the pinnacles in your musical timeline. I'm Freeze, one of the ones, of course, and The High Fidelity, it's I Thank You or Loved Up. But Testify was, uh, as Hi-Fi Sean, was uh, one of the first ones that really made me realise, like, wow, you know, <laughs> now and then I could still make records that that happens to, which was, was really life-affirming and gave me so much confidence because uh, before I made Testify, uh, you know, I hadn't made an album for 15 years and I really did not think I was ever going to make a record again. And I had to think of a way of giving me a project that I could throw myself into that would make me make an album. So that's where I came up with the idea of every track had to involve another artist that I really respected and I found really interesting. And uh, Testify with Crystal was one of those. And, um, and that ended up being the single, as you know. And um, 
I still see things going on with that record today. It's, it's out there and it, it's never waned off. It's just people are discovering that record all the time. I mean, there was this insane thing a few months ago. Um, Nicole Kidman's husband, um, you know, the country and western singer. Uh, yeah, he's so famous. Keith Urban. Keith Urban, yeah. that's uh, Yeah, so one of the crazy things that's happened with Testify recently, which just shows me that it's still out there and people are discovering it, is Keith Urban went and done this interview with like this really massive newspaper in America about his new album or something, and he went and told this story about how he's discovered this record that him and Nicole absolutely adore to the point that every time they drive home into their driveway of their house, they put Testify on full <laughs> and him and his two children and Nicole Kidman get out and they dance outside the car with the headlights on to Testify. And it's like, I can't listen to Testify now without that image in my head of Nicole Kidman and Keith Urban dancing with their kids in the headlights of their car. It's like, <laughs> How insane is that? It's insane. There's lots of ones testifies done. There was I was sent a clip which people can see on my Instagram because I keep posting it all the time because it just blows me away of twelve year old children at a school play in Australia with a teacher doing testify. Sean, I want to get back to that moment either at Ministry of Sound or Ibiza where you're there and, and Crystal's performing, doing the PA and. I want to get into your head. What's your moment there? Um, my moment is just... <laughs> I kind of felt like um, I was watching something that was going on from a third person. It just felt all very surreal that suddenly this was all happening. And, um, I, you know, I never take anything for granted. I always think everything that, that's given your way or anything you're presented with, you should treasure those moments. And, you know, and I've learned that through the experience of having a hell of a lot of amazing moments in my life that maybe I did take a bit for granted at certain times. Whereas these days, I tend to embrace every special element that comes along with what I do as a, a songwriter, musician, DJ, whatever you want to call me. <laughs> if you embrace these moments, they, they stay with you a lot longer. That's the way I look at it. DJ, DJ. How to DJ with Chris Hawkins. Still to come. I think I'm still that guy It was in a band where I'm used to just playing records that you make. So when I'm DJing, I just play other people's records. I like to... Uh, caress the crowd <laughs> yeah bring them in I'm going to get quoted in saying that now, <laughs> next uh, question two into the box you say when okay and go what is the craft of DJing <laughs> the craft of DJing I mean when you think about it DJing is basically uh, you're submitting your taste on other people and the craft is to be able to present records that you love and be able to segue them in a way where you can create an atmosphere over a certain amount of time that either builds or drops or whatever. You know, there's, there is a craft to DJing and controlling a room. You know, you hear lots of DJs saying about controlling a room. Controlling a room is one of the most amazing feelings. I remember the first time where I actually 
got to that point where I realized I could control a room with sound and music. And it was like being in a band. Again, it was like that thing of you can take the music up or down to control the atmosphere like you do at a concert. But the best thing I've ever heard was my friend told me this story that he was DJing (laughs) and he said some young guy came up and said, I want to be a DJ. How do you DJ? And he said to him, learn to count to four and have good taste. (laughs) (laughs) The instinct is the buzz, isn't it? Yeah, the instinct is the buzz, but it's also the, you know, a, a lot of DJs kind of like, do playlists or, you know, practice their sets or rehearse sets. I've never done that in my life. I make it up as I go along. I just take a bunch of music. I read the room and I watch what's happening and I just suddenly think, what do I want to hear at this point? And that's the way I do it. You know, I just kind of think, okay, it just comes in my head. I want that track. Right, I want, I'm going to play it now. Do you, I hope this is not too personal a question, bearing in mind all of what you've said so far. Uh, do you drink while you're DJing? Sometimes, yeah. Yeah, it was funny. Recently, I, um, I've, I haven't actually drank since January because we've all been drinking too much during lockdown and I've started jogging, like me jogging. I'm doing the couch to 5K with Joe Wiley in my ear. And do you know something? I'm doing quite well as well. I'm on week four and I'm running the eight-minute periods and things. Like, I've never run further than a bus in my life before. So good on Joe Wiley for that. I started running too um, during lockdown. And you know what? I think it's done a lot lot of good for my head. Yes. find it a good kind of half hour of isolation and a good space to be in. It's also a great way to listen to music that you're making because sometimes when you're sitting in your studio and you're making music, you're, you're kind of like listening to it like via a microscope. But when you're running and your uh, lungs are in your shoes, you really don't think about the hi-hat sound. Do you know what I mean? You're just listening to the music playing in your headphones. And I found that, I found it's a great way for me to um, listen to the music that I'm involved in at the time and a kind of in a third person, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, it does make sense because that's listening to it in the way that most people do without scrutinising every single second. I mean, I can't even believe that I actually can say, I'm saying this, I think I actually slightly enjoy running. And that's just so alien for me to say that. (laughs) <laughs> Look at me, I'm, I'm running. You're ahead of me. I, I'm doing it out of necessity. I'm getting no joy from it. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> you do get to a point. But I, mean, I, I was the same. I kept saying to people, this is hell. I'm never going to be able to do this. I don't like it. And, and the person that made me start was my daughter, Tabitha, who's 19. She was like, I'm doing this app. You should do it as well. And I was a bit like, mm. and she said, well, if you don't do it, I'm not going to do it. And I said, well, you're not stopping because of me. And she said, well, you better do it then. So uh, I started doing it. And guess what? She stopped doing it, <laughs> but I'm still doing it. So that just shows you. Does she ever come and see you, DJ? She did once. She came to a festival with her friend and they lasted about one record and disappeared. And I couldn't find it afterwards. And I texted her and she went, sorry, we went to watch a band. You got her in, you see. That's all she really wanted. Yeah, basically. Because she was like, can I get in that festival? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm playing. I'll get you on the guest list. She brought her friend and I watched him when I was DJing because I think she thought, right, he's not looking. Come on, let's go. And I saw everything. And I basically texted her and I said, 
by the way, your Christmas presents really crop this year. (laughs) (laughs) Sean, time for another dip into the box now. Okay. You say when. When. Quick one. Straight in. When. All right. And this one is, can you name a sweep of five songs that you play when a night is peaking? Jesus. Um, Wow. Let's think of it as a night at uh, Glitterbox, because I've did a, a lot of Glitterbox parties, and I've had some real euphoric peak time periods in one of them. So uh, one of the records I reached to the most, and I would say is the most played record that I've ever played as a DJ, like way back to the days when I was in the Soup Dragons to right now, and I... Always tell everybody this is the first record that was the start of house music, even though it's got nothing to do with house music, is Hamilton Bahannon's Let's Start the Dance Again. Ah, yeah, I know that, yeah. Everybody get on up and dance, which has been sampled loads as well. So that record, the way it builds, the way it drops, the way it's looped, the way its rhythm's going, and all this, which was predominantly a funk soul disco record, that record to me was the first time that somebody came up with the concept how to kind of make a house record. I'll always stick by that. To me, that's the first house record that was ever made. That record to this day still destroys a dance floor. Any age. I'll let you and Graham Park argue that one out sometime. <laughs> you can play that record to any age and it just completely, if they've never heard it before, they're just blown away by it. I've had people shazamming it in my face and things, you know, you know, and it's a very well-known record, but you have to remember there's people out there that don't know very well-known records because of their age or their background or whatever. And um, that record is some of my top five favourite records, and I always reach for that record. So that's number one. Number two would be a great house record by Ralphie Rosario uh, featuring Donna Blakely called Take Me Up, which is a Lego remix. That record's a real what I call it, like a a smoochy slow pumper. It starts to slowly build and build and build and people just really get lost in it. And Donna keeps singing, uh, take me up, take me up. So it's once again, it's got a real euphoria to it. Number three, Carrie Lucas, Dance With You. Amazing disco record, but everybody knows it for the breakdown in the middle, which Armin Van Helden sampled for You Don't Even Know Me, you know, the da 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 da. So it's really great playing that record sometimes, and when it hits that break, everybody goes, wow, because they think you've just dropped Armin Van Helden. No, but you haven't. (laughs) It goes back to the record. So that's Carrie Lucas Dance With You. Another disco record, Melba Moore, Pick Me Up, I'll Dance, which yet again is very ahead of its time in its production and sound. Uh, Last one, I'm going to pick one of mine, actually. I'm going to pick uh, the infamous producer, Arthur Baker, found a song on a quarter-inch tape a few years ago and reached out to me and asked me if I could try and edit it and save it because it was all, you know, parts of the track had deteriorated through time and etc. So uh, it's a song called Reaching, Arthur Baker Reaching, and it's uh, myself and my good friend, Yam Hu. So it's a hi-fi Sean and Yam Hu edit. That's number five. You must uh, have felt pretty good at that moment when someone like Arthur Baker asks you 
to create something. <laughs> well, the crazy thing is Arthur Baker produced a track by the High Fidelity. Uh, he was at a concert that we were playing in Manchester. Uh, it was during, you know, when they do the music in the city kind of thing. Uh, we were playing a concert in an afternoon venue. Uh, we played this song called Scream If You Want to Go Faster. And he came up to me. I didn't know who he was. And he went, hey, I'd really like to produce you guys, especially that song, Scream If You Want to Go Faster. And I went, nah, mate, I produce records. And he went, okay. And he walked away. And Ross, our drummer, was like, that's Arthur Baker. And I'm like, you're joking. And he went, seriously, that's Arthur Baker. So I went up and I went, you're Arthur Baker? And he went, yep. And shook my hand and I went, how about we produce it together? And he went, mm, okay. And that's how we became friends. Mega. So yeah, I, I I have to give that away. I know Arthur Baker. I've known him for, for many years. Lovely man, an amazing producer. Back to the box, Sean, for uh, your fourth question from this box of 45. Say when. <laughs> when. Is there a secret to being a great DJ? Learn to count to four and have good taste. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Simple answer. No, well, it's true. You know, it's, you're subjecting people to your taste as well. I mean, I don't understand DJs. I've had DJs say to me, they'll play a record and they'll go, I don't really like it, but I'm playing it because people like it. And I'm like, you know, back of the class, straight to the back of the class. That's not the attitude. You know, if you, if you can't enjoy the music you're playing, how the hell do you expect other people to enjoy it? That's what I think. Is this the best time in your career? Oh, the best times to come. Great answer. What's happening next? But I'm being serious. I've just, um, it's kind of funny because I seem to have trajectories and do these things and then do something completely different. So obviously, Hi-Fi Sean is known as a DJ now. But, you know, I also make other kinds of music. But um, so Hi-Fi Sean has made an album with David McCalmont as you know from McCallum and Butler. And we decided to get together. We call ourselves Mick Hi-Fi because we're really crap at thinking <laughs> up band names. And we sat around a table one day and saying, right, let's make this amazing album. We were talking about the ideas we had. Um, let's think of a name for the project. We could not think of a name. We came up with so many names. And then I said to him, like, if, even if I was to sit with you and say, Tame Impala, you'd be like, that's rubbish. Because all names are empty vessels until you put the music in it. And then, because when you think of names now, you think of them with the music that's associated to it. So um, I jokingly started calling us Mick Hi-Fi because it was just a product of our two names. And that's what stuck. Well, it, it does what it says on the tin. Exactly. And if it riles some other people with Mick at the front of their names, that could be fun as well. But um, we uh, have just finished making the most stunning 12-track album. I've never been prouder of anything I've ever done at this point. I'm usually at this point, I'm usually like, I hate it. Nobody will like it. Let's get it out there. I'm just going to put my head in the sand and, you know, move on. But I'm like, no, this is, we both know it's special. We've both made a lot of records in our years and... I'm not selling it. I don't care if you buy it. I don't care if you listen to it. I'm saying from my point of view, it is pretty special. It's amazing. And it's not It's not a club record. It's not 
it's not hi-fi showing the DJ making a dance record with David McCallum. It is electronic, psychedelic soul, and it's it's an album. It's not a bunch of singles. It's not a bunch of tracks. It's an album. It's got a start, a beginning, and a middle, and an end. It's it's got a start and a beginning and a middle and end. It's got a start, a middle and an end. That's more like it. Yeah, exciting. Uh, one last question from the box. Say when. When. Okay. Um, what's the weirdest moment you've had at the decks or in a DJ booth? So you've already done your worst moment, but what about the weirdest <laughs> moment? I've got such a good one. <laughs> I used to DJ a lot of after-hours parties um, in South London. Uh, my set for about two or three years was at six o'clock in the morning to nine o'clock, where people were either coming to the club for the first time, being in bed all night, uh-uh, or they were out all night <laughs> having fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was DJing and somebody came up to me very seriously asking, am I outside or am I inside? <laughs> what did you tell them? I just told them that you are wherever you want to be, my darling. Brilliant. Um, Sean, they're your five questions from the box, but I have got a handful of quick fires for you if you're up for this. Yes, yeah, go for it. Okay. What's the best song to open a set with? Oh, my God. Uh, I'm a big fan of Keep the Fire Burning by Gwen Guthrie because the arrangement of that record's amazing, the way it just keeps building and building and building. I'm not one of these people that starts a set with like, wham, bam, thank you, mum. I like to uh, caress the crowd. <laughs> yeah, bring them in. I'm going to get quoted in saying that. Now, <laughs> he likes to caress the crowd. You can see that headline, can't you? Yeah, it's like Barry White. <laughs> I like to caress the crowd. Sure, what's your favourite song to end a night with? Do you know something? I never usually play my own records. Ever. I'm really rubbish at that. I get told off with it so many times when people come, you know, because you start realising as a DJ, people might actually be coming to see you play because they like your records. That concept for me, I've never got my head around yet because I think I'm still that guy It was in a band where I'm used to just playing records that you make. So when I'm DJing, I just play other people's records. But I kind of recently started plucking up the courage of mixing Testify into something at the end of a set. And this has created some amazing moments. Um, last year, during the first lockdown, I played on Hastings Pier. I recently just done a remix of Lolita Holloway's Shout to the Top, the Style Council song. And I've worked out a way that those two records actually segue into each other really beautifully. Shout to the Top, Complete Euphoria. Where do you go from there? You mix in Testify beats. The and to be honest, the Testify beats came from me from being at a concert and hearing people going, you know, clapping their hands, trying to get the band to come back on stage. And I was like, that's a killer beat. I wonder if anybody's actually, uh, I'm sure people have used it in records, but that's where it came from. And, uh, and that's actually my feet stomping on Testify on the stairs in my flat. So, is it? Yes, yeah, my feet. I recorded my feet 30 times 
It's like I'm a big fan of Joe Meek, and I once read a story about Joe Meek used to record people stomping on the wooden stairs, and I was like, so testifies me stomping, much to my two dogs' dislike, because I remember them that day I was doing it, they were just like, enough already. Come on, can we stop the banging on the floor? But uh, yeah, so there you go, test. I'm going to say testify, because I've now plucked up the courage after that record been out for three or four years that I actually play it now. So if you do come and see me, I may actually play Testify now. How does being a DJ make you feel, mate? Honoured. I'm actually honoured that people actually want to be bothered hearing me play records. Seriously, I really do mean that. Let's think about it in simple terms. I get to play my favourite records loud on amazing sound systems to people dancing and sharing their love of me playing their records to them in a room and me enjoying the energy that they give back to me. I mean, any DJ doing that who does not feel honoured should not be DJing in my books. Sean, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you. I said at the start that I was expecting it to feel like quite a journey, and it really has been. I've got one last question for you. There's some kind of non-specific catastrophic event (laughs) where there's some bizarre caveat Right, you're listening. Uh-huh. Where, where you have to play the last three records before a global dance floor. What would those three records be? Really cheery question. Bloody hell. Um, <laughs> uh, wow. Hmm. Quite a responsibility. It's quite a responsibility. It feels like a, it feels like a scene out of some really bad disaster movie. Right, okay, so uh, Alien Life's about to take over the world and I'm on a DJ unit playing the last three records. Is that not supposed to be something like Fat Boy Slim should do? Not me. It's you with Crystal at your side. No, Crystal wouldn't do it. Would she not? No, she would not do end of world parties. (laughs) That's not Crystal's thing. Um, If I'm doing the end of the world party, I'm going to play three of the most up songs I can think of because if you're going to go out you want to go out with a bang you know you're not going to end the world with the doors this is the end are you so shout to the top Lolita Holloway that would be definitely one that's a total uh, high Um, dare I say oh my god I sound like I'm really pushing this record but once again I'd go for testify because Shout to the Top, like I said, mixes very well into Testify. But then the last record, in a kind of satirical, tongue-in-cheek way, I would play Keep On Jumping by music. Keep on jumping. Everybody's jumping till you see the sun in the sky. You know, you've got to go out in a happy way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, superb. Yeah, music, Keep On Jumping, because it's... Uh, yeah, you got to think when you wake up the next day that there's a chance it might not be the end of the world. Good point. If it was, that'd be a hell of a way to go. Yeah, yeah. It's It would be eight minutes of joy. That's how I hope to end my life. The eight minutes before I pop my glogs, I get some joy out of it. Sean, thanks for being so very, very honest. <laughs> Your stories have been fantastic thank you very much thank you thank you and it's been wonderful talking to you thank you sean dixon thank you so much and that was how to dj thanks for listening please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from